Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the LA area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. You turn there to verse 28. I want to give you a little visual here as we begin this study. Now remember, Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. We're going to pick up the study, and if you follow my little map there, uh, Jesus has spent his entire life no further than 70 miles from Jerusalem. And so if you're thinking of where he was, he just finished with Zacchaeus, and as he traveled through Jericho, uh, you, you could see on that map, if we could pull that back up again while I'm still talking about it, that would be great. Uh, is you, if you look on there, you can actually see that Jesus starts in Jericho. He's going to make his way up the Jericho Road. Uh, he is in the Jordan River Rift Valley. And the reason that this is important is we're going to see the Bible is actually true, and it says he's going up to Jerusalem. Jericho sits at about 1,300 feet below sea level. Uh, Jerusalem sits at about 2,400, 2,500, the center of it, above sea level. So he's going to travel the better portion of a vertical mile up. Um, He's going to travel through these winding, twisting canyons for about uh, 28 miles total from the city of Jericho. And so as he does that, he's going to pass through this region that's called Bethpage and stop at a very specific community, a little hamlet called Bethany, as he approaches the city of Jerusalem. When he gets there, he is going to spend the next week of his life, the final week of his life, between Bethany, which is about a mile and a half from the center of the Temple Mount, And the Temple Mount itself, that is where Jesus will spend the last week of his life. Halfway between Bethany and the Temple Mount is the Mount of Olives. And so this is a very, very, very compact area that Jesus is going to now be spending this final week. And as you look at this picture here, it becomes very evident how close this is. It's really two hills. There's the Mount of Olives, there's the Temple Mount, And Bethany is just out of that picture. And so as you think about this, we're tempted to think it's like all these disassociated places when in fact they're right next door to one another. And so Jesus is going to travel on foot with his disciples. And as he travels up the Jericho Road, makes that 28-mile journey, before he gets to the city of Jerusalem, just about out of the edge of this picture to the right, He is going to get on a donkey and travel that last mile and a half into the city of Jerusalem. Lock that into your mind. Let's pray. We'll pick up in verse 28 as we see the king's coronation. Father, we have come to your house to study your word, to have you speak to us, for you to encourage us, strengthen us, Lord, to draw those, maybe there's someone here today that does not know you. They've yet to profess you as Savior and Lord. And so we pray that your word would speak, that we would listen, help us to grow, encourage our faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 28 here in Matthew, or excuse me, in Luke chapter 19. And, and when he had said this, 
said what? Well, he just finished with the parable of the minas. And so the gospel of grace is going out. Uh, He met Zacchaeus and told him to come down. Zacchaeus is now walking with the Lord. And when he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So there it is. He's traveling from Jericho up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethpage. So there's the suburbs. Uh, We would say that we live in the South Bay, but we're specifically in Gardena. Very similar picture. Uh, The general region uh, was called Bethpage. The specific little town that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived in was Bethany. At the mountain called Olivet, which to he sent his two disciples. And so you can see exactly how specific this is. Jesus is saying, this is where I was, this is what I did, and this is what's going to occur. And so he now says to them, saying, go into the village opposite you. Okay, well, that would be the village of Bethany. And so he's a short journey away where you will enter and you'll find a colt that is tied on which no one has ever sat and loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. And I'd encourage you to circle the word Lord there. The central truth of the gospel, beyond the saving power of the blood of Jesus Christ, The other thing that we always associate with our own relationship with the Lord is Jesus is Lord. Amen? That means master. It means ruler. It means overseer. It means that we now have a Lord in our lives. And so Jesus is saying, and he's emphasizing to them, the Lord has need of him. And when they brought him to Jesus, verse 35, they threw their own clothes on the colt. And they sat Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. And so this is a sign of subjection. Uh, Were a Roman general or a Caesar or someone of power, perhaps Pilate or the centurions would march a cohort of soldiers, often in, in show of capitulation to that leadership, to honor them as having power over them. The local residents would take off their tunic and throw it in the road. It was an obvious sign of submission. It's saying, you rule over us. And so here are the people taking off their outer garment, uh, not so much their tunic, but probably their cloak, that outer piece if they had to, and put it in the road and said, if necessary, uh, we're allowing you to walk over us because we're declaring, in essence, they're saying, This is the Lord. This is the ruler. This is who we believe you are. And then as he was now drawing near to the descent of the Mount of Olives, and here's where you can lock those pictures in. Jesus has come from Bethany, which is slightly downhill. It's actually after the stream and the brook Kidron and the brook Hinnom, the two little streams that flow to the east and to the south of Jerusalem, where they converge in the valley of Jehoshaphat, Uh, Jesus meets up that little stream in the town of Bethany, and he's now come to the top of the Mount of Olives. Now he's less than a half mile from the Temple Mount. He's almost in Jerusalem. He can look down on it. 
As he's drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, now this is super important. This is not just the disciples. This is the multitude of people that have been following Jesus. This is their uniform, categorical explanation of what they have just seen and done. They've taken their garments off, thrown them in the road. Jesus is on the donkey. Jesus is going down the Mount of Olives. And they begin to say with one voice, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, they're saying Jesus is king. He's come in the name name of God. He is Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is very clear what they're saying. They're declaring that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is king. He's the one true king in that sense. Now notice how we know this. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd. So they're walking around. They're kind of traveling with him as they're descending the Mount of Olives. They would have gone right past the Garden of Gethsemane, right through it. The Mount of Olives was called the Mount of Olives because it was covered with olive trees. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, there is an olive press. That's why it's called Gethsemane, the place of pressing. Jesus is headed that direction for the first time during the last week of his life. Rebuke your disciples, they said. But he answered and said to them, now notice Jesus' response, again, very important. I tell you that if these, who's the these? The disciples, the crowd with Jesus, the people who just declared he is king and he is Lord, if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. The rocks themselves would declare the same truth, is what Jesus is saying. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. And whether you've recognized that personally or not, it doesn't change the fact that Jesus is Lord. And he's not just Lord of earth, he's Lord of heaven and earth. He is Lord. The people have declared that. Now remember that we have a declaration that the disciples had actually seen Jesus do all these things that caused them to believe that. This was not information that they just simply heard. They saw it. They they had just witnessed these things with Jesus. And so we have the coronation, if you will, of King Jesus, a passage that we normally would cover Uh, As we celebrate Palm Sunday, this is the Palm Sunday message, if you want to look at it that way. But it's really the coronation of the king. It's King Jesus coming to receive his kingdom. Now, we have almost no ability in America to understand that, especially this year. We just had an inauguration, and it was basically done via Zoom, right? We're watching it on television. We can see a handful of people. Normally, that's a really big deal with hundreds of thousands of people out in the Capitol Mall and and all of the pomp and circumstance and fanfare and parades and everything else. That would probably be the closest we have, but kings and queens have been crowned for centuries, millennia. 
And during Jesus' time, had Caesar come to Jerusalem, there would have been what's called a Roman triumph. They would have had miles of soldiers all in order, carrying their banners and the treasures of the realm. Anything that was captured, they would have had it uh, there for everyone to see. This is the king. But that's not what's happening with Jesus. It's not like Queen Victoria of England when she was crowned in 1838. She was given a scepter that on the top of it was the Star of Africa diamond, a 500, think of this rock, ladies, 516 carats. She had a 308-carat diamond in her crown. But that was nothing compared to the crowning of this king. Because this is the king of heaven and earth. And God's reminding of this. It was a really big biblical deal. In fact, it's only the second thing that's recorded in all four Gospels. The first is the feeding of the 5,000. The second is the coronation of King Jesus. But it's kind of a strange coronation for the king of heaven and earth. There's no pomp, there's no circumstance, there's no glory, there's no splendor. There's a bunch of homeless people and a donkey and some used clothing. They went to a thrift store, got used clothing, found a donkey, and some homeless people were the entourage. Now, I know that sounds a little disrespectful, but I'm trying to help you understand there was nothing about this that would draw attention to anything other than the truth. In other words, no one would have gotten carried away in the splendor of it. They had to understand it with their heart. They had to know what it was because it was truth to them. It wasn't just, oh, wow, this must be great, whatever it is, I believe in that. You see, that's what would have happened had the Romans showed up. You would have seen it, yep, that's obviously the Caesar right there. Because we believe by faith. It's not just simple assent to knowledge. And so Jesus is, in that sense, giving one last call to the people. This is his final major appearance before his crucifixion. He's going to be seen in public, but as far as a public display, this is it. This is the last time that you're going to see Jesus with multitudes of people. And he does something very strange. But we kind of know why he did it. Because he had told his disciples why he came in the first place. In John chapter 6, if you want to turn there, verse 38. John 6, we'll pick up in verse 38 through verse 40. Jesus reminding us why he comes. What he was here to do. You see, he wasn't just coming to claim the prize. He wasn't coming to express his divinity. He wasn't coming with the majesty and raiment of heaven. Jesus didn't have Shekinah glory behind his head. He didn't glow. He didn't float wherever he went. He didn't always just simply mysteriously appear or disappear. He walked every single place that he ever went. But this final time he's seen in public, he does something for the first time and the only time recorded in Scripture. 
he allows himself to ride on a donkey. Take note of that in the back of your mind. There must be some import to it. It's noted in scripture. It's got to be a pretty big deal because I believe it's something that Jesus was trying to express to them in a very clear way. In John 6, it says this, for I have come down from heaven. Jesus says that very plainly. John 6, first, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus came for a purpose. There was a plan. It was not an accident. It wasn't a series of coincidences. And here it is. He tells us, this is Jesus speaking, this is the will of the Father who sent me. Is that plain enough for everyone? This is the will of the Father who sent me. That of all that he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up in the last day. Verse 40. Check it out. Three times, four verses, and this is the will of him who sent me. Jesus is saying, this is why I came. This is the will of him. He said, I've come not to do my own will, to do the will of him who sent me. And he says, this is the will of him who sent me. That everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life and I will raise him up on the last day. That's why Jesus came. Now, why is that important in this context? Because where is Jesus? Jesus is on the top of the Mount of Olives. He's looking down at the city of Jerusalem. He can see at that point in time, Herod's temple is still there, standing on the temple mount. No mosque there. Islam wouldn't come for another 613 years. So on the temple mount is the temple. The portico, the colonnade of the Sanhedrin, where they would meet on the southern end. The court of the Gentiles, the court of praise, the court of women. The central court of sacrifice. The temple itself, the brazen altar, it's all still there. And Jesus, looking down on that, says, I've come to do the will of the Father. And it's not that building. It's not to overthrow Rome. Jesus doesn't stand there and go, I can't believe the Romans are here. Man, how did you end up with such a lousy governor, Pilate? Why am I saying this? Because the mission of the church is expressed here in John 6. Because we're supposed to be like him, little Christ. This is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son, how do they see the Son? We tell them about Jesus. What is that message? It's the message of the gospel. That gospel message is what changes hearts. It is that gospel message in believers that actually transforms society. Jesus never preached a single message trying to change Rome from being who they were. Not one. He spent zero time talking about, well, you know, Herod's evil. It was pretty clear Herod was evil. It was clear Caesar was evil. Those things have been with us since day one. 
Cain versus Abel. What does Jesus say? This is my Father's will. This is my will that people would see me and believe. Not that they would get rid of Herod and get rid of Rome and get rid of Caesar and get rid of Pilate. Get involved in the political scene. It was that people would see Jesus. That was the will of the Father. No one can bring you to a message in the Bible anywhere in the New Testament that talks about what a lot of people are hung up right now on, which is how did we end up in this place politically? Jesus cares about hearts, minds, and souls. That's his focus. That's the focus of the church. And we need to keep it that way. Why? Jesus is coming to receive his kingdom. His kingdom was not of this earth. He's being crowned. What kingdom is he receiving? It wasn't the kingdom of Rome. It wasn't just Jerusalem. It was the heavenly kingdom. It was your heart, my heart, our souls. The collective understanding that all who believe in him would be saved. So he arrives finally. In the midst of all of this, it would be beneficial to remind yourself of the history of that day. So this is Passover week. This is likely the Sabbath or Shabbat of Passover week. It was a week-long celebration. You're in Jerusalem, the center of Judaism. And there might have been, Flavius Josephus records, perhaps as many as two million people in and around the area of Jerusalem. It's packed. It looks like you know some type of a music festival. People crammed everywhere, and they're all on the hillsides. They're up on the Mount of Olives. It looks like Super Bowl Sunday. People are everywhere. They're out having, you know, donkey gate parties. You know, they're out there doing all the things that you would expect people to do that don't actually live there, but they're now having to spend this week in Jerusalem. Everybody's house was converted to an inn. If there was space, it was occupied by people. That's where Jesus is. He's in the midst of the largest gathering that he could possibly be in, and here's all these people going, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And here comes Jesus on his taxi. The master's taxi. And there's a lesson in this little donkey's life. And I pray it ministers to you. Just so you know, I'm not calling you all donkeys, but... You, you might want to look at this a little bit. Here's what happens. Because there's three things that happen in the life of this donkey that if you've believed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, they've happened in your life too. The first thing that we see, go to the village opposite you well, you're, where you'll enter and you'll find a colt that is tied that no one has ever sat on. Loose it and bring it here. Now why is that important? Because... That donkey had a will of its own. It had been its own master up to that point in time. 
and it needed to be redeemed. In fact, the Jewish people actually were given instruction by Moses in Exodus 13 on this very principle, for every firstborn donkey you shall redeem with the lamb. In other words, you had to take a lamb and slaughter the lamb to redeem the donkey. Who's riding the donkey? The lamb that takes away the sin of the world. What's happening? The donkey's been redeemed. Why? Because it was previously unbroken. It was following its own will. And strangely enough, if you don't redeem the donkey, you were supposed to kill it. It was dead. So this little donkey is a picture of you. It's a picture of me. Before I met Jesus, I was living my own life, going my own direction, doing my own thing. I was unredeemed, and I had to be broken. Notice the second thing. It had to be released. It was in bondage. Where was the donkey? It was tied to a post. Where were you before you met Jesus? In bondage to sin and its consequence, which is death. In other words, you needed to be released. This donkey needed to be redeemed. This donkey needed to be released. Notice what they say when they're asked, why are you loosing the colt? Because the Lord has need of them. The Lord has need of you. He wants you released so that you can serve him. He doesn't want you tied to the devil. He doesn't want you tied to your sin nature. He doesn't want you tied down. He wants you released. And in the very same sense as Jesus exercises his lordship by sitting on this donkey and saying, look, we're going to go where I tell you to go. The Lord had need of him. There was a purpose for this donkey's travels. And there's a purpose for your travels as well. God has plans for your life. But he wants us first to be redeemed, then to be released from the bondage that we've been under. You see, all we like sinners have gone astray, amen? Each one of us traveled our own way. Isaiah said, but the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. We were all in trouble And Jesus was the way we got out of trouble. We were released. But the third thing that has to happen, and Jesus exercises this by riding this little tiny donkey, this colt. Now, I don't know what this donkey did. I wasn't there. I'm not that old. But this donkey, I'm sure, began to kind of trot and gallop. It's like, man, I used to be tied to a post. I I used to have to carry burdens. I didn't do anything. I wasn't actually broken. But now I get to go wherever the master sends me. It had to be ruled. That donkey went where Jesus told it to go. And in the very same way, in your salvation experience, you have been redeemed. The price was paid for your life. You have been released. The bondage has been broken to sin and death. And what the Lord expects in return, which he's just been proclaimed Lord, is that you let him rule. He moves our lives forward. And so this is actually a snapshot, if you will, of our life in Christ. This is what happens to each of us. We're donkeys that have been redeemed and released and then ruled by the master. 
Jesus gets us from place to place, has purpose for our lives. But the Lord was going to be criticized, constantly followed by critics, because they didn't like the message. And so they cry out from the crowd, look, you know, tell your, you know, they can't call you Lord. They can't declare that you're a master, that you're God. No, that's, that's not who you are. Jesus said, oh, yes, it is. And if they don't cry it out, the rocks will. You see, there are a lot of people today that don't want to hear, you know, don't tell me that Jesus is Lord thing. You see, what the disciples were actually expecting, what the people were actually expecting, was Jesus to come and transform society. Deal with the Romans. Get rid of Herod. Get rid of Pilate. Kick the Roman cohorts out of Jerusalem. Close down the Antonia Fortress. But that isn't what Jesus came to do. And so Jesus says, look, I want you to understand something. I'm going to fulfill some prophetic events right now. Zechariah 9, 9 is very clear that the Messiah would come on the foal of a donkey. And Jesus does. David speaking. That that's how he would ride in Jerusalem. And he does. The king came. But notice what Jesus says to them. He says, look, you, you guys are looking to the wrong place. You're looking for the wrong thing. Verse 41, notice how Jesus now responds. He, he's been said, hey, tell your disciples to be quiet. And he says, no, the rocks will cry out. If they don't say it, the rocks will. And now verse 41, as he draws near to Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city of peace was anything but a city of peace. It still is not a city of peace. It's a city of angst. It's a divided city. It's a city that, when you travel there, it's this incredible dichotomy of these amazing sights that are attached to the life of the Lord, his death, his burial, his sacrifice, and poverty. Police forces, military, infighting. There in Jerusalem, you have the, the center of three, the only three truly monotheistic faiths, all claim part of Jerusalem. Islam claims the Temple They actually control the Temple Mount right now and have for a very long time. The Jewish people... Worship at the Western Wall, the Hakutel, the world's out, largest outdoor synagogue. Thirteen rows of stones that were just the retaining wall for Herod's temple. And so the city, if you had known, especially you, even this your day, the things that make for your peace, you see what they were looking for was political solutions. A change in government. Something to happen so that Rome no longer controlled Jerusalem. They were actually looking for a theocracy. At least the Jewish people were. It's like, we want God to rule. 
That's not what Jesus says. He says, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side and level you. So here the people are, he's been announced as king, he's coming to Jerusalem, it's the city of peace, and he says, "Mm, you kind of got your eyes on the wrong thing. Surround you, close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. They will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. You're looking for political solutions. I've come to save men's souls. I am the true king. You got that part right. But they that worship him, worship him in spirit and in truth. Amen? He wasn't coming to be a political ruler. He wasn't coming to transform Rome. He was coming to transform men's and women's hearts one at a time. And sometimes in mass and groups. And so we see the Savior weeping. He knew every stone. He knew every woman. He knew every child. And he weeps. He even loved Caiaphas and Annas and Judas. You know, sometimes we forget that. Remember what Jesus is going to say to Judas. Judas, 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 are you going to betray me with a kiss? Really? Gave him time to repent. He says, you don't have to. Nobody's forcing you. You see, most of the world's great cities were on rivers. Jerusalem is the oddest place for an ancient city to exist. It is like the middle of nowhere. The area surrounded is the Judean desert. To the south of it is the Negev. The pyramids of Giza are 120 miles away. So lock that in your brain. The anvil of the sun. It's Lawrence of Arabia as he attacks Aqaba is 65 miles to the south, slightly to the east. This is the middle of nowhere. And here's David's city built on a hillside. And when you think about it, David's city is kind of outlined there in red. And just to the east of it, which is to the right of this picture, as you're looking at it, Is this valley that's lined with tombs. There's the tomb of Absalom. There's the tomb of Zerubbabel. There's the tomb of Jehoshaphat. You remember what David called that valley? He said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, David's home was up in the upper end of it. As he looked down the valley, it was lined with tombs. Today, that whole white area to the right side, that's all tombs. He's looking at it and he's saying, there's no way to redeem this. There's no way to fix this. There's this one spring that Hezekiah digs a tunnel from the spring of Gihon and and causes the water to flow down to the pool of Siloam some 1,300 feet away. That's it. Makes no sense that anyone would even care about that spot. 
And as you look at the Dome of the Rock in the, on the Temple Mount, that's only 45 feet tall. The, the temple itself was almost double that height. Twice the size footprint. And it's still there when Jesus speaks. And he doesn't go, man, we got to save that building. No, he said, there won't be a stone left one on top of another. And about 40 years later, in AD 70, Titus, the Roman general, who would eventually become also a Caesar, lays siege. And if you travel today to the southern end of the Temple Mount, where the Al-Aqsa Mosque is, and you go into the Davidson's Gardens, you'll find the stones that Jesus walked on and parts of the wall that were pushed off by the Romans. Not a single stone is left on the Temple Mount that had anything to do with Jesus. Still. Jesus was saying, you guys are worshiping a building. You guys want me to transform society. I'm trying to tell you I came to redeem your souls. My kingdom is not of this stuff. My kingdom is the kingdom of heaven. You were given the elements of communion as you came in. If you have not received them, if you just simply put your hand up, we'll have one of the ushers come and give you some communion elements. And on the bottom, these are new ones that we found that are better than the old ones we used to use. And on the bottom, there's actually a second little piece of wrapper there that you can peel off and it'll expose the bread, leaving the cup on top still sealed. But this sight that lays before Jesus is is this picture of this world that we live in that Jesus came to redeem. The Bible is very clear about what's going to happen in the last days. And I hate to throw any, you know, things at you that today maybe you're thinking, well, I just, you know, I just want the world to get better. Well, we all want the world to get better. But the truth of the matter is, Jesus didn't came, he didn't come to this earth to save the the systems of humanity. The United States of America is wonderfully blessed as we are to live here makes up less than 5% of the population of the entire world. And so our political systems are not really all that much in view in the mind of Jesus. He cares about the countless billions of people on the face of this earth that still don't know him. That's what he said he came to do, was to make himself known so that people could believe and be saved. And so Jesus looks at this edifice of Judaism, the Temple Mount, and the temple. And he says, you know what? There isn't going to be anything left of that temple one day. And they're all going, you've got to be kidding. Why is that important? Because we need to be concerned with what Jesus was concerned with. And that's men's souls. That's my life, your life, the lives of all who are on the face of this earth. You see, that was Jesus' main care. 
And to that, Jesus cares about what goes on in his church. And so in the final four verses here, he says, and then he went to the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it. You see, there's the temple. This be- the most, it was one of the marvels, the, mar- the seven wonders of the ancient world was Solomon's temple. Finished off by Herod. And people say, well, I go to that church. It's got gold all over it. And Jesus is saying, nah, that's going to go. There won't even be a stone left on top of it. He said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priest, the scribes, the leaders of the people sought to destroy him, but they were unable to do anything because the people were attentive to him, to Jesus. Church, what you hold in your hand is what Jesus said was the sum and the substance of how we are to remember him. If you could take all of the Bible and condense it down to two things, you have the two things in your hand. Because without them, you are not redeemed. Without them, you are not released. And without them, you are not ruled. Because the truth is, you're a sinner and so am I. The truth is, I need to be redeemed because I can't redeem myself. And so Jesus redeemed us. He paid the price for our sin with his own broken body, which is what the bread represents. He was beaten. He was bruised. The crown of thorns was pressed on his head. He was mocked. He was scorned. His beard was plucked. Because all of the scorning of you, the beating of you, if you had worn your own crown, it would have not produced the redemption of your soul. It took the sinless Lamb of God mounting the donkey, going to Jerusalem, and giving his life in your place. And so when Jesus met that night that he was betrayed, and we'll get to that passage in the not-too-distant future, he sat down at a triclinium, this three-sided table about two feet off the ground with the disciples. He took a loaf of bread, and so that they would understand the power of the gospel, he took the loaf and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. As often as you eat of it, do so in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. Because Jesus cares for his church, his blood needed to be spilled. See, the truth is, the wrath of God was kindled against you and me. And so the redemptive price was the blood of Jesus' Son. That's actually what redeemed us. And so Jesus, after supper, according to Jewish tradition, 
took the cup of redemption. It was the third cup. He took the cup after supper. And when he himself had drunk from it, very important fact, because he drank from the cup that he made good for you and I. Though he didn't need to be redeemed, he said, this is the only way you can be redeemed. He drank from the cup himself. And he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant. As often as you drink from it, you do show forth the Lord's death until he comes. Do so in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you rode into Jerusalem that final week of your life. You met with the disciples in that upper room. You would be arrested and put to death. Your blood would be spilled. And then the most glorious thing would happen three days later. Peter and John would race to the tomb. Mary's would be there. But you wouldn't be in it. And you're still not in that tomb. You're risen. And so, Lord, we thank you that you paid redemption's price. That you released us from bondage. And you now rule and reign forevermore. Both in our hearts and in this universe, Lord. You are king and we declare that. Thank you, Lord for what you did on Calvary's cross to save us from our sin. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.